Good morning and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and joining me this morning to look at the week ahead, it's panel regular, former diplomat and international man of mystery, Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. Morning, Andrew. How's things? You all right? Yes, all good, thanks. The London-based media is moaning about floods and drowned tube stations and the oncoming water-based apocalypse. I'm guessing it's all fine in the rural parts of Gloucestershire and everywhere else where you've been this weekend. Well, yes, indeed. Uh, we've had hardly any rain at all, so um, the, the tables are turned because it's normally the west of England that gets the brunt of these things. So, you know, There you go. Turn. Great British podcasts just talking about the weather. Now, the main story this week is whether we've really turned the corner on COVID infections and whether the government's gamble on this Freedom Day thing has paid off. New cases were down for the fifth consecutive day yesterday to about 25,000. Deaths are slowly creeping up. What, what does this all mean? Has the effect of so-called Freedom Day been factored in yet? Well, I think there are lots of bits of noise in the data that are hard to divine. So as I understand it, if you've already had COVID, it's not counted as a new case. Um, so people getting reinfections are not seen in the data. Now, those reinfections are usually going to be fairly mild, so maybe that doesn't matter. But I think there are loads of aspects of this that people aren't really completely on top of in terms of what the numbers really are. The data on the effect of releasing the restrictions, which happened last Monday, will come out this Friday. In the interim, you know, five days is a long time in politics, uh, and this is a government that does tend to, well, as Dominic Cummings describes the Prime Minister as a shopping trolley banging left and right. Do you think we we need to expect a lot of knee-jerk changes between now and then? Because if people can see, if, if there are another couple of days of the cases nominally going down, there are some very loud and influential voices that want you know, further unlocking, faster unlocking, and the, the, the kind of bedding in of this. I suspect that we won't see faster unlocking than we've already had, because it seems to me that they've thrown enough red meat to their kind of lockdown sceptics, and they've got this glide path uh, to, to mid-August for sort of, you know, the, the, other, uh, the, the other restrictions being lifted. Whereas there's still a very live debate about whether or not the current uh, policy is a bit crazy. And even if cases seem to have dropped in the last few days, you know, that, that could just be some sort of quirk of the data. So I'd be surprised if they decide to sort of put their foot on the gas even more. But with this government, you can never tell. Um, the right-wing press, Boris Johnson's real bosses, as Cummings said, uh, have been concentrating on the so-called pandemic. Ministers are today going to announce that rubbish depots and police stations are going to become emergency testing sites for an expanded group of essential workers. Uh, like I say, this is a government known for, for panic measures. Are we going to move from mass isolation from the hated app uh, to a mass testing situation, do you think? That does seem rather likely that, that it's, it's finding a way around this sort of annoyance of self-isolation, which, of course, if it's done properly, is very effective. But in this country, it was never done that well because a lot of the people most likely to be affected were given no support. People on sort of zero hours type uh, working arrangements uh, were just told to not work for, for, for 10 days. And of course, most of those people couldn't afford to do so. So, so I wonder whether in the absence of anything better, we're going to end up with a, with a new system. These images of, of supermarket shortages are very, you know, very eye-catching when you see them on social media, but also they are hard to to fully understand in terms of of a, of a national picture you know you see individual images from individual towns but you don't necessarily know if it's happening across the country what's been your own experience 
Well, I, I can't say I've wandered into any shop particularly and thought, gosh, it all looks a bit empty. But then I spent the last few days in Devon, so not at home. Um, so maybe I wasn't seeing the normal environment. But I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I don't think there's any kind of hard evidence on whether or not there is genuinely a food shortage in the country. And of course, as we all know, there could be lots of other reasons, including Brexit, including the, the situation with HGV drivers that have nothing to do with COVID. Well, that issue of Brexit that you just mentioned there, whenever this stuff is 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 mentioned by ministers or backbench conservatives, the, the B word never comes up. It's always shortage of HGV drivers. It's uh, it's always isolation. It's never Brexit. Do you think people are beginning to associate these problems, uh, isolated, sporadic, and 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 hard to fully put together on a national picture? Are they starting to associate it with Brexit? I'm afraid to say that I imagine that the people who never liked Brexit associate it with Brexit and everyone else associates it with whatever other reason they alight on. And I think, you know, we remain basically a 50-50 divided country on this topic. And that, and I'm not talking about rejoin or any of these more kind of radical anti-Brexit movements, but just simply how you interpret events around you. I think we're, we're still on many subjects, uh, sort of cleaved by, by that 2016 question. We're supposed to be, I think you mentioned it a moment ago, we're supposed to be coming back to normal pub service uh, on August the 16th, but there might not be the staff to do it. We're seeing hospitality, food and uh, logistics businesses short of staff. Are there, are there any alternate routes uh, that the government could take other than simply you know, relaxing the isolation rules. In one respect, you kind of think this is a government with a reputation for incompetence and short-termism. On the other hand, you think, well, what else are they supposed to do in this situation we're in right now? Well, of course, there could be a sort of market forces solution where hospitality workers are paid more, which means that you start to take uh, staff from a wider proportion of the population, which means that, you know, maybe some of these uh, shortages of labour might sort of sort themselves out through market forces. I, I'm not making some kind of Milton Friedman argument here, but it, but it seems possible that um, given that we've we've stopped the supply of new workers from poorer places in Europe, that we're, we're going to have to find the supply from within our own country. Now that, in all conventional terms, implies that prices will go up. Unions are preparing to tell workers to ignore the exemptions from isolation that are going to come in this week and, and stay at home anyway. At the moment, with Parliament having risen around with the unions should be a gift to Boris Johnson, shouldn't it? I would think so. And particularly if I'm I'm sort of not up to speed with, you know, the sort of who is the new Bob Crow. But if you get some really unsympathetic union leader that you can make into a kind of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of target of, of, of right wing ire, I would have thought that that's quite a quite a good um, opportunity for, for the Conservatives. Johnson's just had a, a really chaotic week. You know, isolations uh, for for ministers, followed by pilot schemes, followed by back into isolation, all kinds of other stuff. Behind the Conservative poll lead, which is still relatively robust, its lead on handling COVID and Johnson's own numbers have been getting steadily worse. 52% of voters now think Johnson can't be trusted to take big decisions, which has increased. 45% think he's unable to get things done, which has increased also. Does he need this breather with Parliament away? I mean, it, it, it really does look like his prime ministership has kind of run out of steam. The big levelling up speech last week was a total damp squib, and he basically said, who's got some ideas, email me. In general, um, 
governments quite often find themselves in a bit of a pickle in the summer, partly because, you know, there aren't enough people there to sort of support the operation and unexpected things come up away from the sort of normal parliamentary schedule. I I think that the big change with Johnson is that it does seem that he doesn't really have any more a team of people in number 10 who have the skills to sort of manage the political uh, landscape for him. And so then his underlying talents, or more importantly, the lack of them, shines through. One could imagine that he does, he will get a bit of a breather over the summer, but uh, barring any sort of major international crisis or something where he has to try to show that he can be prime ministerial, which I think is quite hard for him. But I, I can't see that it's going to be very different in the autumn unless he does something very different about, he, about how he manages his operation. And that, of course, comes back to the Dominic Cummings issue, which, you know, for all that Cummings is a ghastly person, what came out very clearly from the, the big interview was that he was running the show because Boris Johnson himself was completely incapable of running anything. Mm, yeah, and whatever else might be odious about Cummings, he did have an agenda. He had things he wanted to do, and Boris Johnson doesn't really seem to have anything he, he wants to do, apart from stand on a podium and say levelling up. Exactly. So he, there, there is no such thing as Johnsonism except to make Boris Johnson powerful, wealthy, and presumably surrounded by women he he feels attracted to. <laughs> so the, you know, the, there's the, there's no ideology there. One issue that he is trying to push through, if we believe the weekend's papers, is vaccine passports, especially for students. They will, uh, if Johnson gets his way, have to be fully vaccinated to attend lectures or stay in halls of residence. Um, vaccine uptake is lower and it's slowing amongst young people, um, but increasingly they're being hospitalised. They are not dying, but they are likely to be in line for long COVID. Do, do you think that students and universities are going to be the, the kind of proving ground for vaccine passports in the weeks and months to come? Basically, um, you know, test the principle amongst people who don't vote Conservative anyway. Well, there is that. I suppose there's a practical point that students are a kind of registered and known about body of people who, in most cases, attend a certain location on with some regularity, even if they're not, you know, going away to university. So I suppose that the logistics of vaccinating that cohort is slightly easier than just young people in general who, who can sort of disappear off the map slightly. But yeah, you're, you're ultimately, yes, this is a group of people that, that aren't going to vote Conservative and, and have basically been given up on by the by the sort of average um, Conservative strategist. And it wasn't as if they were going to go and see Eric Clapton anyway. Wired magazine is saying the NHS COVID app has quietly become a vaccine passport. It's a, it is a, a de facto requirement for, for a lot of, of, of what you might want to do, such as going to gigs and football matches in the, in the next few months. This is all taking place against the backdrop of those quite shocking anti-vax and anti-mask protests at the weekend. What do you think is the direction on this? Are are the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers growing in influence or are we just seeing more of them because they provide horrible and shocking images on social media and conventional media? I'm pretty sure it's the latter. I've obviously not done polling on this, but it seems to me very implausible that normal people see that crazy nurse calling for healthcare workers to be hanged and sort of think yeah you know at least someone's talking the truth here and the other thing is you know so many of these people are calling themselves anti-lockdown protesters and lockdowns have all ended and they're still protesting so I mean they don't appear to me to be a remotely convincing 
group of people. And ultimately, if you look at the people who are not vaccinated in this country, which is a tiny number, and if you look at where those people are, it appears to read across to areas of deprivation, areas maybe where there are cultural factors that affect people's willingness to be vaccinated. I don't think these people are choosing for some ideological reason not to get vaccinated. It's more that these are people whose lives are a bit complicated and they haven't managed to get there. So I suppose what I'm getting at, that the like proper ideological anti-vaxxers in this country, I think, are a tiny number. On the wider politics of this, before we move on from COVID, uh, at the end of this week, Simon Stevens is going to be stepping down as the chief executive of NHS England. We all thought Dido Harding was going to get it. According to Health Service Journal, she's out of the running and the former McKinsey CEO is is, is likely. I mean, this is this is a kind of a, a major changeover. It's a it's a heads will roll rather than governmental heads will roll job. It's hard to predict in this kind of in a complicated organisation like, like NHS England exactly what a new chief executive is going to mean certainly for us who weren't you know far from from health experts but what does it what does it mean politically politically is it a case of like you know a, a major change has been made well i think uh the conservatives will breathe a sigh of relief to see the back of simon stevens because let's not forget I, i'm not accusing him of any kind of political bias but his background was through the blair era as blair's advisor on health and he was prepared to be publicly fairly critical and certainly quite challenging towards government policy. So they they couldn't get rid of him. He was extremely sort of eminent and uh, distinguished in his field, and everybody knew that he was doing a very good job. But I think they'd be quite happy to see him finish his term. I should think that the next person will be a far lower profile figure, and particularly because Dido's out of the running, they're going to go for someone who's got strong professional, you know, credentials to, to do this kind of job uh, and probably hope that they just sit quietly and do what um, Sajid tells them to do. Away from COVID, uh, we've still got unelected bureaucrat Lord Frost and his command paper on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It seems a bit tactless to call it a command paper, doesn't it? As if we're kind of issuing orders around Europe. The plans in it are, re- are for removing any EU institutions from the protocol, a standstill period, to renegotiate the protocol, which the EU doesn't particularly want to do. And my favourite, the end of customs checks in favour of an honesty box. Why is this happening now, Arthur? What can we expect from this? Lots of boring attrition as Lord Frost just keeps hammering on. Yeah, I think so. I mean, why it's happening now, because it's a bit of an end of term thing, isn't it? You you know, you, you put in your extended essay just at the end of term and hope <laughs> that, um, you know, the teacher marking it, in this case, Maros Sefcovic, uh, is having a quiet summer, so so you won't you won't hear back from him for a while. From from what I understand, and I've been listening to sort of you know European responses to this, people are pretty underwhelmed. That the command paper is full of very disingenuous uh, references to the sort of unforeseeability of the current problems, which is basically flat out a lie. I mean, it, it is there's there's no polite word for it. It was absolutely clear what was going on, and even even before the protocol had come into place elements of the British government were identifying these issues and starting to work on them. So they knew exactly what was going to happen. So then then it comes down to the asks. It's impossible to believe that the EU is going to allow the European Court of Justice to be removed from a question of EU law. I mean, that's just a basic structural factor within the EU. So so that particular proposal is, is going to go nowhere. The more complicated or more nuanced proposals, which are basically the standstill, which effectively is saying, can we just carry on muddling on for as long as we like? 
I think that's where the debate will lie. Because, of course, uh, if the EU says, well, you can't have any more time at all, that from their side looks to be very combative, looks to be very unhelpful. And clearly, if the Brits say, well, we just want a completely open-ended era in which we can do kind of what we want for as long as we need, that also, you can see why the Europeans wouldn't go for that. So it seems to me that actually... That it doesn't. The command paper is full of sort of big statements. It'll be very annoying to the Europeans. It doesn't really change the debate very much because it all comes down to at what point is the UK going to start to implement some of the things that it's committed to in the protocol. Now they're not going to implement all of them. I think that much is clear. They've already kind of broken the trust on that. But they're going to have to implement some of them at some point in the future, and that debate continues. As we've always said, Brexit is never, ever going to end. It's going to stretch no. on for decades. One thing to keep an eye out for this week, tech earnings for the for the, the tech giants. Google and Facebook's advertising businesses are forecast to show a 50% rise in revenue this week. And Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook are expected to report a combined $72 billion rise in revenue just for the second quarter. That's 30% up on the year. This is a huge rise related to the effect of lockdown, the effect of driving people towards um, e-commerce rather than physical shopping. Do you think this is, I mean, these are are astonishing figures. Is it likely to add impetus to, to Joe Biden's push to get large companies taxed properly? Well, it ought to. Um, I imagine it'll also add impetus to billionaires flying off into space um, <laughs> because uh, Jeff Bezos seemed to be willing to thank all of us schmucks who buy from him that we, we've paid for his little trip. I mean, yeah, it, it ought to. It seems to me that the, the slight challenge is that, you know, a lot of people, myself included, we sit around sort of saying, this, this is terrible, what do we do? And then we go online and organise all of our shopping because it's actually rather more convenient and standing around in shops with other people who might be ill is, is all a bit awkward these days. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, trivial about this, but it seems to me that, you know, tech businesses, part of the challenge is that if you think of Google, Amazon, I mean, Facebook, perhaps less so, they provide the infrastructure for so many people's daily lives now. And, and un- unless we are willing to completely change the way we're sort of interacting with these types of things, these these businesses will continue to grow and, and make crazy sums of money. Finally, let's do Arthur's World News Desk. The Taliban in Afghanistan, they are advancing after the withdrawal of American troops. Um, horrible stories are emerging. Over the weekend, they murdered a popular comedian. What's your latest update there, Arthur? Well, so what's been happening is the Taliban have been surging through the sort of countryside districts in all parts of Afghanistan. And it, and to some extent, that has been the big surprise because there are areas of the country, particularly in the north of Afghanistan, where historically they the Taliban has been less, you know, less, less powerful, equally in the east around Herat. But what hasn't happened is any city, any provincial capital, has fallen to the Taliban. So there's been a lot of sort of expectation. And and I spoke about this, I think, on an episode of The Bunker about 10 days ago. A lot of expectation that the Taliban are going to sweep into the cities. Kabul will fall, as it did in 96, and you'll you'll return to that kind of extreme Islamist, ultra-conservative administration of the country. I don't think that's going to happen, because what we're actually seeing is where the line of stalemate lies. And the line of stalemate lies outside the cities. 
The Taliban can take countryside districts. And of course, when we say the Taliban, that in itself is a misleading word. There are endless different militias and groups and tribes and and other sort of interests at play. It's not an army. It's a movement that has people flipping in and out of it. But the other thing that's really important, incredibly important, is that the Americans, they may be withdrawing, but they've made it clear that they'll continue air support. And that's one of the reasons that the Taliban can't take cities, because when they look like they're about to do it, as they did the other day at Kandahar, which is, you know, Afghanistan's second city, and would have been an absolutely huge victory if the Taliban had taken it, the Americans bombed them out of the way, basically, uh, with aircraft. So I think for as long as that situation continues, the Americans demonstrate that they're willing to bring in a certain sort of firepower at a certain time. The Taliban have kind of reached a limit of where they can go. So then we're, we're back to where we were originally, which is that the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan have got to find some way of, of rubbing along together. And it won't be pretty because these are nasty people they murder, you know, they murder anyone who's involved with bringing some sort of progressive life to, to Afghanistan. But they are also people that represent in their own way, a large swath of the Afghan population. So uh, someone has to find um, some kind of peace deal between them and the government of Afghanistan. And we've also been talking quite a bit on the bunker the past couple of weeks about Cuba the large and very conspicuous uh, demonstrations that we saw uh, a week or so ago seem to have, well, not exactly petered out, but certainly seem to have calmed down. What's the latest there? Well, you're right. There's been a sort of uh, a slight dampening and, and the government has, has now been sort of prosecuting uh, prosecuting demonstrators. Obviously, they're desperate to sort of represent this as, as, as a kind of one-off event and these people, naughty people are all going to go to prison. But I think... Actually, what we're going to see is this is going to become a sort of rolling experience because what's happened is a certain taboo has been broken, a, a, a size of demonstration and a degree of sort of anger at the leadership of the country, not just at the sort of administrators, has been allowed, has been enabled. People have experienced this. And I think we're going to see more of this uh, in, in, in the future, particularly because the underlying issues Cuba's very, very difficult economic situation, the very, very severe COVID pandemic. Those issues aren't going anywhere for the moment. And of course, there are lots of countries in the region, including America, who would be perfectly happy to see uh, the communist regime in Cuba collapse. And finally, before we go, the Olympics are still on this week and for a good few days. I've got to admit, I've not really been watching, but it does seem to be a little sad, you know, with no crowds and a really messy TV presentation, partly because the BBC no longer has full access to free-to-air stuff. You've been watching. What have you been thinking, Arthur? Well, the first thing to say is, that, of course, in order to watch, you have to do sort of ingenious things with your VPN and pretend you're in America and all that if you don't want to watch whatever, you know, bog-standard thing the BBC is serving up. And, of course, it used to be the great joy of the Olympics was tuning into some obscure sport that you find interesting but but you never normally see on TV. So that, that's been a little bit, I think, disappointing. Uh, and certainly it is a bit weird to see these, um, you know, the, these events taking place in empty stadiums. Having said that, I think there's still something magical about watching archery, which you never normally watch and thinking, gosh, that's really amazing the way they always hit the bullseye or skateboarding and, you know, a pair of teenagers um, doing crazy stunts and all the rest of it. So I think I think there's a little bit of the Olympic magic, but it certainly is a very kind of dulled version of it compared to what we normally experience. 
well, maybe it'll pick up. I don't know. Got a couple of goals this morning, didn't we, Team GB? Oh, that's Thought right. And, and I think there's always this cycle because uh, the things that we're good at seem to happen later in the Olympic schedule. I'm, I'm, I'm no expert on why that would be. So we always start off with Team GB looking a bit wobbly, and then we seem to do better as the games continue. Now, I'm, I'm not in a position to predict that we're going to have a brilliant games, but I imagine there'll be a few more goals in the next couple of weeks and, and everyone will feel better about it. It's the winners that I feel sorry for as they're going to have to find excuses not to be first to go up next to Boris Johnson doing his thumbs up as he looks for his Olympic bounce, which he inevitably will. Well, it, he will, but then it's rather interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, apparently the, the England football team decided they didn't fancy a reception at number 10 Downing Street with Boris Johnson. So maybe, you know, that sort of mentality is, is spreads quite widely, I wonder. I wonder. Well, I guess we will see. That uh, is Start Your Week. Arthur, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, if you like The Bunker, then why not support us and keep us going with a small regular amount via Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll be helping to fund our backroom team and our panel, and you'll be ensuring that we can keep on keeping on. And also, you'll get the podcast early and without adverts, so it's not all altruistic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the full panel show. See you next time. Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Bodmasters production. <laughs>